I love that new song. It's such a reminder of what God did for us, how much he cares for us, how far he went to let us know how loved we were, how lost we were in our own self-centeredness, in our own brokenness that he would find us. In fact, that theme really picks up well here as we enter into Luke chapter 15 today, because we're going to find a pretty powerful principle that God is going to call each one of us to search for the lost, but often we don't remember to search for what's lost. In fact, Jesus is going to say that you won't remember to search for what's lost until you realize that you were once lost and found. Think about how that plays out. Think how often... We don't remember to search for what's lost, and whether that's a family member who's lost in depression or lost in self-centeredness or lost in brokenness, whether it's somebody who's lost and doesn't know Jesus. If you don't realize you were once lost and found, you're going to get self-righteous. Well, I would never do that. I would never struggle with that. I would never say that. And so you're dealing with a teenager And unless you remember that you were rebellious, you were a rebellious teenager, maybe it came in a different form, and God had to come after you to steer you back, until you remember you were lost and God found you, you're not going to remember how to interact with and balance grace and truth with the teenager. Until you realize you were God's unfaithful spouse, until you realize you were crabby at him and critical at him and unthankful what he's done for you, until you realize you were lost and he found you, You're not going to remember to go after a spouse, to give them more compassion than they deserve, more mercy than they deserve. And if you don't realize you were lost and found, then you're not going to prioritize your life around building friendships with people who believe differently from you, different views on God and Jesus and the Bible. I mean, imagine as we enter into 2019 that God had a big lost and found bucket here. What would you want to pull out of that? For some of us, we've lost the ability to influence people who are not Christians because we don't know how to have relationships and conversations with them that draw them in. Others might reach in and say, I've lost my joy this year, and God, I'd like to find my joy. Remind me of the joy of my salvation. Some of us have lost the ability to be in touch with God's mission and his heart for the lost. Some of us have lost the ability to be in connection with God's heart because until you remember how lost you were and how found you are, you're not going to know the power of the gospel. So Jesus lays out three stories, three parables of things that are lost this morning. As he does that, I think he wants what, what you find when you find something. You ever lost your keys or lost your wallet, lost something, and all of a sudden you find it, you're like, I found it! Oh, you want people to enter into joy with you. Jesus wants you and I to know the joy of being on mission with being a finder and a seeker, of seeking and finding that which is lost. So he begins with an interesting story about lost salt. You've got to go back to chapter 14 to understand chapter 15. Lost salt, with I think a really strong question, are people who believe differently from me drawn to my joyful Spirit. What do you think? For you. Here's how Jesus begins in chapter 14. Salt is good. Salt is designed to impact and to influence and to preserve. But if salt has lost its flavor, lost salt, 
When salt loses its ability to influence, loses its ability to create taste, loses its ability to draw your desire, and when you, when you eat salt, suddenly you're like, oh wow, now I need some water, right? You get around people and suddenly there's a longing for a drink from God. But if it's lost its saltiness, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land or even a dunghill, Jesus says. Men, throw it out. And Jesus says his favorite phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is his way of saying, think about whether this applies to you. Have you lost your saltiness that people who believe differently from you aren't drawn to you and your joyful spirit? Have you lost your saltiness? Understanding that context helps you understand the next verse in chapter 15. What happens in verse 15? Right after talking about salt, we hear, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. Jesus hasn't lost his saltiness. People who totally disagreed with him, sinners, people who were corrupt in the world's eyes, the tax collectors, were drawn to Jesus' joy, drawn to his sense of purpose, drawn to his teaching, drawn to the way he communicated life and God. Did they behave the way Jesus did? Did they believe the way Jesus did? Not yet. But they were drawn to his saltiness. They were drawn to his ability to exude the life of God. Verse 2. Here are some people who've lost their saltiness. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and the scribes complained. Man, what are you doing hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Worse than that, you're receiving them. Worse than that, you're eating with them. Oh! And it's into that context he speaks the parable of the lost sheep the lost coin, and the lost son. But before he talks about that, you need to understand he's talking and addressing lost salt. Leaders who have lost the ability to have conversations with and talk about and live a kind of life of Jesus that draws people to them. Have you lost your saltiness? The longer you're a Christian, the more you hang out with only Christians, and less and less you hang out with people who believe differently from you. And we lose our saltiness. Now this phrase, tax collector, is a very interesting one. So when you think tax collector, you think, oh, IRS, April 15th. But in the Roman Empire, it was much worse than that. See, the Romans have conquered from India to England. And if you're going to take care of that large a territory, how do you do revenue production and how do you keep control? you got to invoke the locals. And so what the Roman Empire would do would find a local who lived in your area and they would bribe or um, make a bid and they'd say to the Roman Empire I can get X amount of money out of this neighborhood and if they won the bid the Roman government gave them power to tax that neighborhood X amount or whatever else they could raise so they would raise X give it to the government and then they would raise an additional X times 4 or X plus you know whatever and keep to themselves well to show you how people felt about tax collectors if you ever seen the Amazon Prime special um, movie series called uh, 
The Man in the High Castle. It imagines a scenario where the Nazis won World War II. And so imagine the Nazis won and America has been infiltrated by the Nazis. And so you've you had a next-door neighbor, a friend of yours, your kids have played baseball together, your, your daughters have been in swimming competitions together. The Nazis have taken over. And your next-door neighbor who you've known and talked with makes a deal with the Nazis. He comes knocking at your door and says, I want a third of your income. A third of my I'm going to give you a third of my income. Two Nazi soldiers standing next to him. You're going to give him a third of your income. He takes a third of your income, knowing it's providing for people he knows and cares about and loves. He takes a portion up to himself and gives a portion to the Roman government. How do you feel about your neighbor? Well, you know, he's got a few rough edges. Now, you hate your neighbor. You hate him. He's treasonous. He's a Benedict Arnold. He's a tax collector. And Jesus, knowing all of that, lives a life that draws tax collectors and draws sinners to hear about the joy of God. Unbelievable. So lost salt. Then out of that, Jesus tells a parable. And so what's the parable? Well, the parable moves from lost salt to lost sheep. Lost sheep. I think there's a question here as well. Am I increasingly isolated or integrated with my friends and neighbors? The very nature of our culture is to become increasingly isolated. The nature of being in a Christian subculture is to be increasingly isolated. But to be salt and to go after lost sheep, you need to be increasingly integrated into your family, into your community, into your neighborhood. Here's how he tells the story. What man of you... Now notice the emphasis here is on the man... Not the sheep at first. What man of you having a hundred sheep? So we're talking about not just a man, we're talking about a shepherd. What shepherd of you having a hundred sheep loses one of them? So notice the Bible is going to simultaneously talk about sheep and shepherds. And here, remember he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the lost salt. And he's telling them they are the man, the shepherds who lost the sheep. What man of you, when you lose your sheep... You lose one of them, you're supposed to go after them. You leave the 99 behind in the wilderness and you go after the one which is lost until you find it. I'm going after these tax collectors. I'm going after these sinners. Of course I'm dining with them. Of course I'm receiving them. And when you found it, you lay it on your shoulders rejoicing. And there's a joy. Rejoicing. And you want to spread the joy. You call your friends and neighbors together and say, Look what I found. That which is lost is back. You rejoice together. You say to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Now look at this transition. Verse 7. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who don't think they need it. Remember I told you you won't remember to search for the lost until you remember that you were once lost and found? This is a message about going and searching for sheep, but you're not going to even want to do it until you realize you are the sheep. That Jesus talks about somebody who is bragging to their friends to rejoice with them, and then he says, let me tell you who I brag to. Likewise, the angels, my friends, in heaven. God, let me tell you, 
how I found Chad lost in his self-righteousness. Let me tell you how I found Ben when he was going off the wrong track. Let me tell you when I, well, how I found Mary because she thought that her good works really were good enough and she was just lost in the fear of trying to be good enough in the treadmill of good works. See, until you realize Jesus is a good shepherd who came and he found you, of all the things he's got going on, holding universes together and atoms together, he went after you. And when he found you lost in your own critical spirit, your own self-pity, your own materialism, your own self-righteousness, your own religiosity, he found you and said, that's not going to work. And he put you on his shoulder and he brought you to heaven. And then he called the heavens together and said, look what I have found. He's back. She's back. See, when you realize, oh, God did that for me, then all of a sudden when you come across somebody who's rebellious or believes differently politically from you or religiously from you, you don't go, oh, what's wrong with these people? You still may disagree with what they believe or what they say, but you say, boy, the same thing that's wrong with me. Hard-heartedness and self-centeredness and, and the filtering out of the truth to believe lies. That's what's wrong with them. That's what's wrong with me. And God have to go after me. And since he went after me and found me, I want to search diligently for that which is lost. In fact, in the Jewish culture, especially in that day, this idea of a shepherd going after sheep would be very, very common. Here's a picture of modern-day Bethlehem with a shepherd walking with his sheep. And having 99 sheep... It would be very regular occurrence to see a shepherd coming back, having a sheep that he found that had gotten away, had gotten away from the fold. And God wants us to be these type of shepherds that go after the prodigal sons, the prodigal neighbors, the rebellious friends, and wrestle with the grace and truth balance of how to do that. Because remember, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's talking about shepherds who lose sheep. She comes directly out of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 50, it's a great chapter if you want to read the whole thing. He says, my people have been lost sheep. So he's talking about people. The people are lost. They don't know what to do. And sheep are dumb and they're smelly and they're disgusting. My people are smelly and they're lost sheep. But their shepherds are the problem here. Their shepherds have led them astray. They haven't led them to me. They haven't led them to abundant life. In fact, they, the shepherds, the lost salt, have turned them, the sheep, away on the mountains. Israel's now like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. But I will bring back Israel to his home. And it's oh, such a powerful passage. God says, I tried kings. I've tried prophets. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come to earth and be the shepherd you need. It's a powerful prophetic passage. Because the shepherds were so bad at shepherding, God says, I will be the shepherd and I will come to earth and shepherd you myself. I will bring you back. I will be your good shepherd. Which is why Jesus refers to him as the good shepherd. It's not just a metaphor for the culture. It's actually a response to a prophecy that God said he would come and shepherd his people back to life. That's what God did for you. He became your good shepherd. He says, if you're going to be a shepherd, you need to realize you were shepherded. And I went after you as a shepherd when you were lost, so you will go after the lost who need shepherded as well. 
Again, I want you to think now about these shepherds. Shepherds kept their animals often in a stable. That's what a stable looks like in biblical times. A stable is often a cave, and during the storm you would put your sheep into the stable. So Jesus was probably born as the shepherd who came for you and I in a stable. But he didn't stay in that stable for 33 years. He came out of the stable. And what happens is when you get comfortable with your friend group, your insulated life, you have a tendency to just hover around the 99. And one sort of scatters out and you're like, there's a rebellious one. They really didn't get it. I wonder if they were a Christian to begin with. And you sort of huddle together in your huddle and you talk about the rebellious one. This is what every family reunion is like, by the way. Everybody gathers around. Whoever's not in the room gets talked about. This is how it works. Versus saying, how do I go out and encourage the discouraged? How do I go out and reach those who are broken? And Jesus says, shepherds who are stuck in their stables aren't in line with my heart. But even more, some churches are such a holy huddle, they don't reach out and draw new people in. Other churches are so focused on reaching people out, they don't learn how to equip people and grow people. So there's another picture from the culture. This is also from Bethlehem. This is a sheep that's been found, brought back into the fold, who's drinking out of a manger. So if you've never seen a biblical manger before, they're not made out of wood, they're made out of stone. They're stone constructs that have water in them. And so you'd bring the lamb back and you would let them drink. You would feed them and water them and prepare them. And that's why we as a church want to be going out to seek the lost. And then when we bring them in, we want to teach them, equip them. Tell you what a manger is. Tell you about a God who came and allowed himself to be born into a manger. When people thought of a manger, they thought of the place that water came. And Jesus always was the fulfillment of the holy water, the spring that came from the rock in Exodus in Numbers. So how does he come? He comes in a faucet, in a manger. He comes as the bread of life in a town called Bethlehem, which literally means Bethlehem, house of bread. The shepherd comes to fulfill the shepherding. The bread comes to a bakery. The water comes to a faucet to both lead and find that's lost and then to equip and feed us and grow us. That's what God's about. And keep in mind that when God says that you're a sheep, it's not something positive. So don't think of precious moments, little elements. Oh, look at a pretty little thing. Jesus is saying I'm a sheep. No, he's saying you are a dumb, stupid, smelly animal is what he's saying. And when you're a dumb, stupid animal, I went after you because I loved you. And just to give you an idea of just how dumb animals can be and how sheep and how insulting this is, you can understand how lost you were and I was. I found a couple of videos several months ago that show just what shepherds have to do to help sheep. Let me show you this video of a shepherd that walks up to his flock. There's 99 sheep here together. And as he comes to the flock, one of his sheep tried to jump through a tire swing. And that poor sheep is stuck. He cannot unstuck himself. The rest of the 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 sheep are like, well, I don't know what to do. It looks bad. You know, they're not doing great. Here's another shepherd who walks out, and there's this nice grassy lawn. But he's counting, and he realizes 99, where's the hundredth? And he sees this little hole in the ground. And he's like, oh man. He's got to grab some grace, grab some truth, wiggle a little bit, yank a little bit, and pull that whole living, breathing sheep 
that wandered himself into the hole out. Because that's what shepherds do. And if you want to be serious about being aligned with what God does, you're going to have to get smelly. You're going to have to dig into holes. You have to get into people's lives that are very, very messy. Because God did that for you. You crawled into holes you shouldn't have been in. Holes of rebellion, holes of self-centeredness. It's one of the reasons we do what we do as a church. This Christmas Eve was so cool. We had so many neat stories. One was a friend of mine who's not a believer in Jesus, God of the Bible. But he loves coming here. And he uh, called up the office and said, is there any way I can get tickets? We had tickets left for several services out of the nine. And, but they were getting low. And we gave him tickets to he and some friends he invited. And he's like, oh, my goodness. It was like he won the Super Bowl or something, tickets to come to our Christmas Eve service. He came in the door with several friends who also are not believers in Jesus, God, and the Bible. He's like, oh, and here he is, somebody who does not believe the way we do as a church, taking his friends who do not believe the way we do as a church. And he's like, could I give him a tour? He's taking them up to the offices, showing them our fireplace, showing them the outside. As soon as the service got over, I think they came to the seventh one, he texted me, that was such an awesome service. Wow, that spoke to me and my friends. And I thought, what have we done here that we've been able to create a place where we love God, love Jesus, love the Bible, don't compromise it, and people who don't believe what we believe are inviting their friends to come hear about it. That's pretty exciting. That's seeking and saving that which is lost. I had another woman who came and she lost her husband in October. And it was a tough Christmas for her. It was very unforeseen. And she said God spoke to her so powerfully when Neil came up and sang, Let It Be by the Beatles. In times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me and says, Let it be, let it be. And we talked about that phrase, let it be, was what Mary said to the angel Gabriel. She says, I can't tell you how God spoke to me, that he's still with me this Christmas, Emmanuel, even in my grief. Even as a sheep who is lost in uncertainty, lost in the unknown, and lost in grief, God used a Beatles song to communicate his presence. So lost sheep. Then Jesus tells another parable about a lost coin. The lost coin is about somebody who searches for opportunities to display God's heart right where you're at. Instead of changing your circumstances, what if you ask God, God, how could you demonstrate your heart right where I'm at? Look what happens in the, in the passage. Now he switches from a man to a woman. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now if you drop ten pennies, are you going to look for that tenth penny? Maybe for a minute. And you're like, well, you know, we'll find a vacuum cleaner, we'll suck it up. What if you've got ten pieces of gold? Well, the price of gold's what? It's about $1,300 per uh, ounce. Okay, I think I'll spend a few, a little bit more time, right? When something's valuable, you spend a little bit more time sweeping and looking and searching and lighting. See, we don't value the lost, so we don't search for the lost. And you're not going to value and search for the lost until you realize you were that coin. And God, of everything God's got going on, he's plenty busy. There was nothing more important to him than looking and sweeping and lighting and finding you. You were the valuable one that was lost. And you were found. 
And when you realize you were lost and found and that God searched and lit and looked. And then God said, like this woman does, she calls her friends and neighbors again and says, Rejoice with me. I found the peace I lost. Notice the connection here. Story's about Jesus before it's about you. Likewise, there's the connector again, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels, my friends, that I tell about, when one sinner repents. And God says, I want you to have the joy in your life that I have telling the angels the story of finding you. That's what the story was about. So how do we take these parables about salt and sheep and coins and apply it to our life? I would suggest three things. Number one, you got to get lost. You got to remind yourself how lost and broken and in need of God's grace and mercy you are. Because if you don't, you're going to get self righteous. You ever been self righteously critical of someone? The answer is yes. Yes, you have, probably today. And you have a unique flavor of it that's unique for me. My son, for example, he was on his way to a movie recently to meet up with us, and he called me last minute to say, oh, my goodness, my car broke down, the battery's dead. I said, let's pull over the side of the road. But I'm kind of annoyed because he's asking me during the previews to leave the movie theater, come get him. But I'm willing to help. I'm his dad. Help him, we get to the movie theater. Afterwards, we get a battery, put the battery in, and he backed it into the mud. He's stuck in the mud. <laughs> oh, that's all right, you know, that's all right. The next day, got a, a friend who's going to get a car. We're going to pull him out. We get there, about to pull the car out. Got the chains about to be hooked up. I said, well, hop in the car, buddy, and uh, you know, just turn the key into neutral. Dad, I, I don't think I have the key. You don't think you have the key or you don't have the key? <laughs> I don't have the key. And suddenly, me who loses my keys three times a day, I wasn't judging him for that. I was judging him for wasting my time. For wasting my friend's time. How could you do that? And so I became in my heart self I would never do that to somebody. I would never say that. I would never have forgotten this. Of course I have and would. But you judge people on something you think you'd never do. You need to get lost. Remember how lost you are. And it may not be this category. It's a category equally as bad. And it's out of that sense of mercy and lostness that we find God. Secondly, we need to get started. Make this the year you get started, bathing in your sense that you were lost and found. And I need to start relationships that make me more integrated into my life. Start trying to show compassion to a a, a spouse or a prodigal that God showed to you. Get started. Intentionally learn how to build relationships with people who believe differently from you. And get smart about it. What is a unique brand of you sharing your story? Not just your like, how did I come to Jesus story, but a faith story. A faith story is a story that you talk about how God is currently working in your circumstances. That's it. It's knowing how to have a conversation, showing interest in other people, that you show people what it looks like when God's involved in your life. And that might be he comforts you in grief. He brings joy to your mourning. But you learn how to just tell normal stories that are smartly told to people about what it looks like to have a God-led life. I'll tell you one of mine having this, this break. And it was a difficult one, but it's one I've told several people already in trying to just share what real life with Jesus looks like. 
We had a very challenging day with Mr. Quinn. You know, he's got zippers up his back so he doesn't spread poo all over our house. We've got cameras all over our house. We've got locks on every interior door and exterior door and much, much more. And it just was a long, long day, especially without our systems in place for Christmas. So much so that he's downstairs and I hear stuff collapse. I run downstairs and he's shoved over the TV. And then I, as I'm going to grab that, he, he's, he's having a great time. He shoves over the toy box, stuff all over the place. He has acid reflux right now, so he's throwing up six to eight times a day all over our carpet, which we're having to clean up and mess up. It's just chaos. And so I've, I've got a screw, and I'm just trying to screw these things into the wall so that nothing can be taken um, off the wall, I'm screwing TVs into walls, and I'm screwing toy boxes into walls, and cleaning up all the mess, and just can't even keep up. The quicker I fix it, the quicker he destroys it. So he goes upstairs with Beth, and while I'm fixing things, I hear, I need help! So I run upstairs, and somehow, though the door was locked, it wasn't quite pushed all the way in, that he pushed into the laundry room and grabbed the tide and dumped every bit of it out all over the floor, then grabbed the bleach and dumped it all over the floor. I come up and I'm just angry and frustrated and Javen comes up and takes Quinn and puts him in the bathtub and we're trying to tiptoe around the mess. We clean all that up, we put Quinn in bed and we, Beth and I sit down on the couch and we're just exhausted. And she's like, you want to watch TV? I'm like, I need to pray. And I don't honestly even know how to pray. And so I'm holding Beth's hand on the couch and I said, God, I'm angry. It just seems like he destroys everything. I love him. I know you have in our life, it just destroys everything. I'm starting to get tearful. I'm starting to just give myself the freedom to be angry. And I said, God, your Holy Spirit says that you can pray and intercede in ways that we can't even speak. I don't even know how to pray, how to speak. I just ask that you would speak right now with the words I need. And in that moment, the house is silent. My son Javen's in the basement watching a TV show. Can hardly ever hear him because he's two rooms over. In the silence of that moment, God, would your Holy Spirit just speak and help me know how to even think about this? And I hear as loud as can be, Holy ship! He didn't say ship, though. <laughs> Jay was watching some Netflix show that had some twist in the plot. And at that moment, he yells, Holy ship! And I'm praying... And Beth is holding my hand. She starts laughing. She starts laughing so hard that she's giggling like a little girl. And I'm in tears, and I'm looking at her, and I start laughing. And we both just start laughing out loud. I'm like, you know what, God, thank you for that. I, I don't swear very well. I didn't grow up a family that swore. But I'm like, that is probably the best expression of how I feel right now. And it was like, God, you know what? Uh, much as I've told my son I prefer that kind of language around the house, Thank you for that, because that brought some joy into my life. It's just a real story about how God works in the midst of grief and joy. My friend Jim Eller is like that. He was my best man in my wedding. Best man in my wedding. He has this ability to bring joy into people's life. And he's gone through incredible tragedy, and yet he is so smart about sharing his story in a way that woos people in. He's literally 15 minutes older than me. He tells me all the time. We're both born on May 21st. But on his 22nd, 23rd birthday, he'd fallen while installing some windows at a house, and his hammer went through his spinal cord. And he's now paraplegic. And yet I am amazed that 
everyone I know in high school, everyone I know in college, flocks to him, flocks to his Facebook page as he just constantly brings joy into people's life and finds ways to, to inspire them. He goes down and helps other young men and women who have lost some aspect of their movement and tells his story. And he shared this story recently, and I just think it's such a powerful example of somebody smartly communicating what real life looks like and how God works in the good and the bad. And you should see just a list of comments from people who are not religious, who are dialoguing back and forth with this. My friend Jim. He says, I want to tell you my story. Even if you're not religious, here's what God's done in my life. After my spine was severed, I went to a rehab hospital that focuses on paraplegia. They told me that I would be there approximately three months because that was the average stay for most patients. I told them I'd be there for a month. They said, well, it takes longer for most people. He said, well... I'm not most patients. You know, the Bible says clearly and bluntly, in all things give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, I'd read this once or twice growing up in church. It's probably way easier said than done. I was in my room watching TV after my accident when I heard these words faintly in my mind, like someone had whispered them in my ear. Clear enough that I heard them over the volume of the television at the hospital, but not out loud. I muted the television and said out loud, Excuse me, what was that? I knew it was God reminding me. I had formed a semi-separation from him somewhere in the hospital. I didn't blame him, but I was disappointed that he had allowed me to be permanently injured. I felt like he owed me some protection. I hadn't gotten it. So I was angry, and I didn't know just how angry until I heard the words, In all things, give thanks. I knew it was God. I felt a tone of sarcasm begin to grip my heart and mind. Give you thanks? You want me to give you thanks for this? Are you serious? You want me to be thankful for being paralyzed? You've got to be out of your mind. I'm not happy with this. I won't give you thanks for this, and I never will. With those words, I unmuted the television, turned up the volume louder than before, in case God tried to interrupt my viewing again, and he didn't. The next night, the same thing happened, just like the previous two nights. 8 p.m. on the dot, I heard a faint whisper in my mind, almost as clear as the bell ringing in the room. In all things, give thanks. I clicked the television off in sincere anger. I began talking out loud to God, who was clearly on my last nerve. I was not yelling at him, but talking to him as you might talk to a telemarketer who just called when you sat down to eat dinner. What is wrong with you? I told you I'm not going to do that. You want me to be thankful for this? Seriously? No, I won't do it. I will never do it. Don't ask me again. I feel like I have done nothing but try to serve you, and this is what I get in return. Why don't you just leave me alone? I don't want anything from you. And with those words, God left me alone. I returned to Illinois. I was living in my parents' home and staying in their home because it had a bathroom that was wheelchair accessible. I'd been out with some friends the night before playing cards and basically being a normal guy and having normal fun with friends. I drove home with the sunroof open, enjoying the summer air, and I felt great. I felt like life was going to go back to normal. My parents had family pictures all over the walls, and I was in most of them, standing, of course. And I realized of all the things I've done with my normal working body. And that's when I felt that reminder come back to me again. That familiar voice with a gentle whisper into my mind said, In all things, give thanks. I rolled my eyes with a sigh. Lord, you don't fight fair. Here I am having a great night, and now you spoil my evening. I want to obey you, but I I just didn't know how I could. I simply could not give him thanks for my condition. There's just no way. 
I lay there in silence, wondering how to reply to him. He never said anything else. He just waited patiently for my answer. And I finally gave in and said, Okay, you win. You want me to give thanks? Okay. I looked at the pictures on the walls and realized that I had lived a great life. I began to tell him thanks for those things. Thank you, God, you allowed me to see the world. Thank you, allowed me to run, to play sports, do all kinds of things that people only dream of. After I thought I'd thanked him for everything that I could honestly thank him for, I realized I needed to thank him for one more thing. Tears were streaming down my face as I said, Thank you for not letting me die. Thank you that I can still feed myself and dress myself, that I can still use my hands. Thank you that my injury wasn't worse. And finally, I asked through my tears, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want to do with my life? I can't be a carpenter anymore. I don't know what else to do. How can you use half a man? I heard God very calmly whisper to me, you don't worry about that. You just be ready. And I will show you in time and you'll be ready. I remember I slept better that night than I had in years. A weight had been lifted off my shoulders and being obedient and giving thanks. And I know that I couldn't do that in the beginning. But I wonder how my life would have been different if I had. And that was almost 15, 20 years ago. This was from a week ago that Jim continues to be such an incredible source of joy meeting people in hospitals, telling his story to old high school and college friends. And people are drawn to somebody who can find such joy and gratitude in the midst of real-life struggles. Being a Christian isn't pretending, life was bad, I have Jesus, now great. It's what does a Jesus life look like? And when you're honestly telling real faith stories, people are drawn to that authenticity, authentic joy and authentic peace. Get lost, get started, and get smart about sharing what God's doing in your life right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your heart for the lost. We thank you for being our shepherd. Make us shepherding people. Make us a shepherding church that goes after the lost and equips and feeds those who are here. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for being here today.